really glad to be here. I'm glad to see that there's some folks that are in. You know, 2 o'clock on a, on a Saturday afternoon workshop, that's nap time usually at, at functions like this, so usually there's not anybody there. So it's really kind of neat. You know, I feel kind of special about the fact that folks showed up. First off, I want to say uh, my, my manners and thank the committee, and particularly Lucky is the one that uh, called me and asked me if I'd come here and, and share about a workshop, and I said I would be happy to. And he said, well, what do you want to share on? And I said, well, whatever you want me to. And so we're not sure yet what it is because we've never really figured that out. But we did talk some about sponsorship, and that's probably what I'm going to talk about. Uh, but we're also going to talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. The other thing I'm going to tell you is that, no, we are not going to sit here for two hours uh, because I just think that's really, really hard on us alcoholics and even non-alcoholics. It's hard on anybody to sit in a chair like this for two hours, so we won't do that. Um, I want to also say that uh, my wife, Linda, is not here. She sends her regards. She would like to be here, but our daughter, Karen's first 15th birthday is today. And uh, so we had to put priorities in line, and, and we kind of wanted her to come along, and she almost did. And then uh, a swim party at the at the uh, at the uh, Grand Casino sounded a lot more interesting than coming to the Natchez. I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> when you're 15, that's the way it goes. But uh, yeah, but I am real grateful today to have some people in my life that are real important to me and we're able to travel and do some things together. And so I'm real grateful for Kevin, who came with me. And Kevin and I have uh, been working together for some time, and it's uh, really kind of neat and fun, and it's a real enjoyable thing to do. I want to talk a little bit about sponsorship, and the reason I want to talk about sponsorship, very honestly, is because of my own experience. And that's really all I can give, is give you some of my own experience in sponsorship. If Today, if you get on the Internet, and you get on some AI sites, and there is one out there that that goes all around the world. And they asked a question on there one one time on a poll, and they said, what is the thing that's most needed in Alcoholics Anonymous today? And overwhelming throughout all of, uh, uh, throughout all of the world was sponsorship. It was responded to sponsorship uh, that uh, I think it was like 87% of the people said that sponsorship was the number one thing. One of the things I want to talk about today is, for me at least, what I see in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I've been sober since October the 6th of 1986, and I'm extremely grateful for that. Uh, I have heard a lot of misinformation in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have said this before. Misinformation in Alcoholics Anonymous has killed more alcoholics than alcohol. Now, I'm not going to try to go over that. Someday I'd be more than happy to come to your group or to your district or whatever and do a workshop on misinformation and Alcoholics Anonymous because we all hear it. But one of the things we hear in sponsorship, what do we hear when newcomers come into our meetings or a treatment center comes to our meeting and they say, oh, you need to find a sponsor? One of the things that we'll hear from the AA community is, oh, stick around Go to a lot of meetings. When you see somebody you can relate to, go up to them and ask them to be your sponsor. You have just sent out some very bad information. And I'll give you from my own experience. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1986, I was not only still drunk, my mind wasn't square, and I sure was lying. So the only person that I could really relate to was somebody that was a drunk, liar, and willing to go around and do a little, play a few con games. 
So if I would have found somebody I could relate to when I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous and asked them to be my sponsor, there'd have been two sick guys working together. And maybe we'd have both died. And if you'll look around in your groups, check around in your groups. Keep track one t- just one time for just, say, a period of six months. Keep track of how many one-day chips you give out. And then at the end of that six months, keep track of how many six-month chips you give out. And yet, if you was to ask all those people after 30 days do you have a sponsor, the chances are you would get the answer almost overwhelmingly, yes, I do. Now, a well-kept secret in Alcoholics Anonymous is who is your sponsor. You know, my sponsor's name is Tom S. Tom is uh, May the 11th, celebrated 28 years of sobriety. And today, Tom is one of my best friends. I can tell you that in 1986, Tom was by a long shot one of my best friends. Number one, I didn't believe him. He was 13 years sober. If you're an alcoholic like I am, I cannot conceive at being 30 days sober how you could be 13 years sober. That is just an absolute blew my mind. <clears throat> he said to me, well, when I went to him and asked him to be my sponsor, I want to talk a little bit about, well, how do you go about getting a sponsor? What should we be telling these people from treatment centers that are first coming in in their first 30 days, and we talk to them and we tell them, well, you need to get a sponsor. What should we be telling them? How do we, tell, how do we hand out good information? Number one, and I'm not going to go through the steps, but if you're into Alcoholics Anonymous, you probably are already in. Just the fact that you attended the meeting tells me that you have already done part of step one. And you also have gotten some basic belief in step two, or you wouldn't be there. The hardest step in this program is step one. Now, you may not believe the whole thing in step one, but you know you got some kind of difficulty. You probably are behind in taxes, or your wife or your husband is giving you a hard time, and therefore you might find that you think you have a need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous to get that stuff straightened out. And that's sometimes why people go there, and maybe they don't think they have an alcohol problem. Even judges and court systems do not sentence people to attend a certain amount of Alcoholics Anonymous meetings because they got a tremendous amount of speeding tickets or because they didn't pay their state taxes. That's not why they send them there. So they have some basic idea of step one when they come. When I got here, I had a basic idea. I also had a basic idea of step two because I knew that I was in so much confusion that things just weren't going well for me. And so I thought that maybe that I might get some kind of help. So where we're at when we get in there and we're first there, we're really at the beginning and we're ready for step three when we first come into Alcoholics Now. I'm talking about somebody, first day they walk in that door. Never gone through a treatment center, they just, for whatever reason, walk in the door of Alcoholics Anonymous. They very, very honestly are ready for step three. And what we're doing in Alcoholics Anonymous, when we say to them, go to a lot of meetings and find somebody you can relate to, we're taking them out of the, f- the third step. And that's, uh, that's what we're doing. What we should be doing to those people is say, listen to your quiet inner voice. We recommend to you to have a sponsor. Listen to your quiet inner voice, and if you're drawn to someone, go there and then leave it alone, or we should go to them and say, we recommend sponsorship in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
It's worked well for me. My sponsor is Tom. Tom's been sober 28 years. He helped me out tremendously, and when I was in a lot of difficulty and fear and, and concern and so on, he was the man that helped me out. I like what he gave to me. I am willing to share that with you. I will be glad to be your temporary sponsor until you can find someone else that you're drawn to. But I think we give away bad information when we say, find somebody you can relate to. I would still be going to Alcoholics Anonymous looking for a sponsor if I could find somebody I could relate to. I was in a meeting recently. And a man said there, I don't have a sponsor. He's 28 years sober. And he said, I don't have a, I don't have a sponsor. He said, I spent 20 years in the military and everybody told me what to do. He said, I've been married twice. Obviously, I've been told all my life what to do. I am not going to have somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous tell me what to do. Now, he's been sober 28 years. Do we say then that he doesn't have sobriety? Well, he may. And that's fine. That for me, my experience says, I need a sponsor. And if I project that kind of information to a newcomer, I know that if I would have heard that when I was new, and, and it, by the way, the only reason I got a sponsor is because the treatment center that I went to said I had to get one, or I couldn't get out, or at least that's what I thought I heard them say. They said I had to get a sponsor, and if I didn't get a sponsor, I couldn't get out of treatment. So I thought the only way I'd get out of that place is get a sponsor. But, you know, if I'd have heard that information, I'd have gone back to that treatment center. Look, I can tell you the name of a guy that's 28 years sober, never had a sponsor, doesn't want one, it's not going to use it, not going to have one. But he said, when I have a problem, I will bring it to a meeting, and there I'll have a whole bunch of sponsors help me to work it out. Another bad piece of information in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to share a little bit about my sponsor. Tom, like I say, was sober... Uh, 13 years when I met him, I went to a meeting. I didn't like him, number one. When I first went to AA meetings, I couldn't sit still. I'm a smoker. I'm a coffee drinker. I'm a Coke drinker. Uh, and I go to the bathroom. And all of those things took place in the, in the span of one hour to a tremendous degree when I first got into Alcoholics Anonymous. I would go watch Tom. Tom would sit very quietly for an hour, an hour and 15 minutes at an AA meeting. Wouldn't get up. Wouldn't go anywhere. Just stay there. I couldn't identify with a guy like that. The other thing he was, he's, he's a very calm and quiet type person. He's, uh, he's very profound when he, when he talks, but he's, he's very uh, quiet and, and serene, and he has a habit of rubbing his tummy, and he just, you can just tell he's just serene as a dickens. And I, when I first saw him, I used to just hate him. I, oh, there ain't anybody going to be that serene. Uh, but I was drawn to him. I was scared of him, but I was drawn to him. The neat thing is that 15 years ago, I believe, you had your first Natchez Roundup, and Jimmy Williams spoke at that Roundup. He was a Saturday night speaker. On the way to Natchez, to that Roundup, was the first time, because I was at that time about 10, 11 months sober was the first time that I actually had listened to my sponsor that day. I remember it. That's the first day I listened to the instructions of my sponsor. And see, I, that's why the Natchez Roundup is kind of important to me, because I remember that. Sponsor to me is, number one, at first time was not my friend. He wasn't my buddy. Now he is today. We've grown into that. But he's not my friend, not my buddy. We don't go fishing together, and he's a great fisherman. We don't go out to eat together. We don't do a lot of things together. 
Now, Tom has taken me to my first convention. Tom has taken me to my first uh, area assembly. Tom has been with me all through my sobriety. The good, the bad, the ugly. Tom has been there. He has been a part of and very succinctly a part of my sobriety. So that's a little bit about uh, Tom and, and how I met him and how uh, way I think you get a sponsor very honestly for a newcomer is you go to a lot of meetings and when you feel drawn to someone, go back to that meeting, find that individual again, be really willing and ready to be prepared to say I'm on a temporary sponsor. Tom is still my temporary sponsor. Uh, now, I am not disrespectful to Tom. At the same time, I'm going to come back and tell you Tom is my permanent sponsor, and he will always be my sponsor. Even in death, he will be my sponsor. And I've walked through some of the darkest, deepest valleys in my life with my sponsor. But that's how you get a sponsor. You get drawn to someone, you go and find them. The other way you get a sponsor is we, as members of Alcoholics Anonymous, have got to be responsible and walk up to that newcomer and say to them, I know that one of the things that's been successful in Alcoholics Anonymous for me is sponsorship. And since it's been re uh, helpful to me, I would like to volunteer to be your temporary sponsor. Now, some other misnomenclatures that we get in AA, and I don't know where these things get going from, but they get going. And that is that a sponsor is not supposed to call a sponsee. I call my sponsees. Tom called me. Now, Tom doesn't call me a lot, but he calls me. It is my responsibility, but when I first got into Alcoholics Anonymous, I couldn't accept responsibility. I did not know what responsibility was. And so what I had to do is I had to get commitment, and that's what I want to talk about a little bit in terms of sponsorship. I'm going to talk a little bit about history. I kind of like history. You know how lucky we are to have AA? You know, sometimes we don't appreciate Alcoholics Anonymous. I really don't think as members of Alcoholics Anonymous that we appreciate Alcoholics Anonymous. We would not be here today if Dr. Jung would have said to Roland Hazard in 1931 or in 1932, if Dr. Jung would have said to Roland Hazard, yes, come back into my care and I will be, I will treat you again for one more year for alcoholism. We wouldn't be here. Now tell me, if you were, if you were a Dr. Young, think of this insanity of this deal. Dr. Young was treating a man, Roland Hazard, whose family was extremely wealthy, whose family had enough money to buy anything they wanted. And because he was restless, irritable, and discontent and had an alcohol problem, they searched the world wide over to find the best psychiatrist in the world to work with him. Two came up. One was Sigmund Freud, and the other was Dr. Jung. Sigmund Freud was busy and turned him down, said, I can't do it. Dr. Jung took him. They said, we'll send him over there, and they did, with a blank check. After one year of treatment every day, he stopped to see some family friends in France and got drunk. His family sent back over an entourage of people with another blank check and picked him up in France and took him back to Dr. Jung and said, it wasn't successful. Will you come and treat him for another year, and here is a blank check? Now, if somebody was throwing me money like that, I'm not so sure that my selfishness, self-centeredness, I'd have said, 
I think I'll take a little bit more of that business. That's all right. That's pretty good money. But instead he said, no, I won't. I have applied all the medical, psych- uh, psychological principles that I could possibly do to this man, and I thought I had him changed in terms of heart and attitude, and I thought I had a cure. But now I find that he has a disease of alcoholism, and it's something that I cannot help him with. And they turned down the money, and he came home. Somewhere on that, on that trip, he didn't stop to see the friends in France anymore, and, and he went on and he got on, on the ship and went back to New York. Somewhere on that ship, I believe in the bottom of my heart today, that man went through a, a spiritual uh, experience, a spiritual awakening. It's never been documented, and we don't know. But you see, if that wouldn't have happened, he wouldn't have been there. If he wouldn't have been there, he wouldn't have went back to, and got involved in the Oxford Movement, which he did. <coughs> and he was up in uh, Vermont. And when he was in Vermont, he met a fellow there. He met a fellow by the name of Seth, and Seth and he became friends. And they were going to Oxford meetings together. And Seth's father was a judge. And there's another, another man that had had a lot of trouble with alcohol, and he kept getting arrested for alcohol. And he had been arrested for drunk driving and, and disorderly conduct and so on and so forth. And he was under probation, and finally here one day he takes his car and he's drunk and he drives into a house. And he drove right into the living room of a house, went right through the living room window. And when the lady of the house fortunately was not struck, but she was frightened and scared and she came and she got around to the car or whatever, and this guy rolls down the window of his car and says, can I have a cup of coffee? And that was Debbie Thatcher. And Abby Thatcher was sentenced, was sent by the, was in jail and was, and then sent before a judge for sentencing. And the family of Abby Thatcher, who's, his family had a lot of money. His brother was mayor of Albany, New York. Uh, he was up in, in, uh, in Vermont, uh, up in New England, actually on, on, uh, on vacation that summer when he was getting into all this trouble. And, uh, his father, his parents, uh, family owned a hardware store and they also had, uh, they made the, uh, carriage systems for the Pullman cars and the railroad business. So they had tons of money, and they didn't know what to do with him. And the judge finally said, you know, I've had it with this guy. You're done. And they were going to sentence him to an institution for the rest of his life. And Seth went to his dad and said, look, I'm in this new group, this new movement. And he said, you know, would you let us talk to him? And his dad said, no. I don't care what you're into. I would, we're not going to be, you're not going to be able to do anything for this guy. But Roland Hazard, whose family had a lot of wealth and knew the judge's family pretty well, he went to him and said, Judge, if you will give me this man, I'll take him out of Vermont and never allow him to come back. And so that was Evie's sentence. And Evie was sent from Vermont to go back with, with Roland, and Roland said, let's go to New York. He said, okay, he'd go to New York. So he goes to New York, he gets involved in the Oxford Movement in New York, and things are going fine. And one of the rules of the Oxford Movement is you got to witness. But now keep in mind, Evie had a lot of, he was a flashy dresser, he always wore those uh, saddle shoes, and, and he always had a neat hat, and, and all, just really liked to dress up. But when he'd get drunk, he was just, he was terrible. He was just, he'd be a, he was a Bowery drunk. So he gets back in the Oxford Movement in New York, and they said, well, you got a witness, and, and Evie thought he was too good to witness, and he wouldn't do it. He said, no, I'm not going to. And so Roland went to see him, and he said, Evie, if you don't want a witness, you want to go back to Vermont? Evie said, oh, well, I guess, maybe. I guess I'll go witness. Because he knew if he went back to Vermont, he would go to jail. 
or go to an institution. So he decided to witness, and as he was thinking this through, he said, who can I go to see and witness to that is would not embarrass or ashamed me? Who can I find that I would not would not embarrass my family? And he happened to remember his old buddy that used to come up and visit his grandparents in in uh, in New England, and they had a little cottage up there. And he said, Ah, I got this buddy of mine lives in Brooklyn, and his name is Bill, and I'll go see Bill. And Abby went to see Bill, and of course, the rest of the story's in the book. Now, see how close we were? If, the, if Dr. Young would have kept Roland Hazard, he'd have never got back in time to speak to Abby. Never got back in time to do it. If Abby hadn't done all the things that he did and that judge hadn't done, and sometimes we in AA get to thinking, I think, we get our egos way out of line, and we think that we've done some wonderful things to get here. And we have a wonderful organization. If we hadn't had outside help, we wouldn't be here. That's the bottom line. Now, another word that we pass around in, in Alcoholics Anonymous all the time that is not defined very well is the, world, the word miracle. You hear it all the time. I'm a miracle. I'm a miracle. You know, if you said if you got up this morning, you looked in the east, and you saw the sunrise, and you said, "Oh, isn't it a miracle? It's a miracle. Look at the sunrise." Well, get up early tomorrow morning and see another one. You know, I mean that. We toss that word around. A miracle is something that is totally unexplained. To me, in Alcoholics Anonymous, a miracle is two parts. A miracle in, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous is opportunity and preparation. And when opportunity and preparation meet, we have a miracle. And I'll explain. In my life, God provides the opportunity. In Alcoholics Anonymous, it's my responsibility to be prepared. I never taught and learned the, the art of responsibility of preparedness until I got into Alcoholics Anonymous. Prior to that, in my life, I have had tremendous opportunity that I passed by. In my drinking, I was fired from a job. Today is a, fi- a Fortune 500, was a Fortune 500 company then, still is. The guy that took my job, used to work for me. And when I got fired for my for drinking, or due to my alcoholism, this guy took my job. Today he's retired. He's younger than I am, and he's retired. He's also a multimillionaire. I'm not retired, and I'm not a multimillionaire. The opportunity was there, but I wasn't prepared. The miracle was there. I didn't fulfill my responsibility. God provides the opportunity. I have to... Re- provide the preparedness. And I think sometimes in Alcoholics Anonymous, we say, and I know we say this all the time, oh, just wait five minutes for the miracle. How about, let's get prepared for the miracle, because it's going to be here in five minutes. There are people in Alcoholics Anonymous that I see die just five minutes before the miracle because they didn't get prepared. And we in AA sometimes do not do our part in terms of preparation. I have to assume some responsibility for the preparation of the miracles of the people in my life. And I take that very, very seriously. I'm going to give you an example of that. We know the tragedy that hit this, this last week, and it's horrible. 
13 years ago, on September the 4th, a man came up to me and said, I have been having difficulty and I want to get sober. And I have tried. I was sentenced by the court in Houston, Texas to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I have been exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous, but I have been unsuccessful in staying sober. And that night that man went and picked up a chip, a one-day chip. And he was, at that time, he was working for the Air National Guard, full-time. And he was having a lot of trouble with his employer and almost got thrown out. And we carefully, through sponsorship, with him being prepared and getting the work done and the opportunities arrived, a year ago in August, President Clinton signed the papers to make Mike a full bird colonel in the United States Air Force. And last Tuesday, Mike was in the Pentagon when that plane hit. And I'm going to talk more about Mike as far as why sponsorship is important. And I was nervous, and I was scared. And I got on the telephone, because I just talked to Mike. I talked to him about every two weeks. He's the guy, if some of you know my email address is SponsDude, and the reason for that is because of Mike. Because Mike always called me Sponsor Dude. And, and he had got a little son, and, and uh, so when I was trying to come up with an email address, you know, there's a lot of Millers and there's a lot of Garys, and you can't get a combination out of that that'll work. And he said, well, just use Sponsor Dude. Well, it won't take all of Sponsor Dude for an email address, so I just use SponsDude. And that's my email address, fondsudadaol.com. Well, I got his pager number, and I got his office number, and I got his secretary's number. There's, there's some things you got to go through when you're going to talk to a bird colonel in the Pentagon. That's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And uh, anyway, I got all the numbers how to get a hold of him. So I try to call him. I can't find him. I can't get him. Looking all over for him, can't get him. Find him. But you know, AA has taught me, wait a minute, just don't get excited. He's got a lot of things to do, and when the timing's right, God will put the opportunity to get to talk to Mike. Well, that afternoon, then about 6.30 or so, I talked to Mike's wife, and Mike's fine. But he's extremely busy. And then I got to thinking as I was talking to Mike, I, I have talked to him since, and I've also emailed him, but of course there's a lot of things that are going to be going on in the next few months, and we see it on the TV. There's a lot of things that are going to be going on, and there's going to be a lot of decisions made at the upper level. And people have to make those decisions. You know, we should... Keep our, I think I want to keep the prayers going out for uh, for uh, Bush and for those people and for Mike. Because about two months ago he called me and he said, "Well, sponsor dude, I just thought I'd let you know that I'm now taking a trip over to the foreign countries to look at what our munitions are over there and what our what kind of aircraft we have and where they're all at and what our inventories are and that's because I'm making new assignments and new adjustments and shipping stuff around. So he's very much involved in all of that." And our prayer should be with Mike. That's all we're going to talk about that. We're going to go back to sponsorship, and then we're going to bring him back in there, okay? When I went to my sponsor, Tom, and said, would you be my sponsor, he said to me, I need to understand, I need to define to you what sponsorship is to me. And he said, I think of it as total commitment. I said, okay. Now, my idea of total commitment is, at that time, my idea of total commitment is that any time I call you, you'll be at my beckoning call. That's kind of what I'm thinking of. That's, that's commitment. The commitment in sponsorship is it's as important for the sponsee and the sponsor to both have the same level of commitment. And I'll just tell you what my relationship with Tom was. 
Tom said to me, what day do you have available? He said, I'm retired. You pick the time and you pick the hour. I want one hour of your time every week until we get through the steps. And I said, okay. Now, when I first got sober, and some of you have heard my story, I, I, uh, I didn't have anything to do, but I was real busy. And so I didn't know, checking my busy schedule, just exactly when I could take the time out to go meet and help this poor man that needed to see me one hour every week. But anyway, the time was uh, 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, and we, we agreed to meet at 3 o'clock on Friday, and I would go over there. And he said to me, he said, now, I just want you to know that I am going to be there every Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And he said, I won't talk to anybody else. And he said, as a matter of fact, I won't answer the telephone. So if you're not going to be there by 3, don't call me at 10 after 3 and tell me you're not going to be there, because I'll be there, but I won't answer the phone. Because it's your time, and I'm not going to take away from your time. I'll never forget him saying that. I thought, holy miracle, he takes this crap serious. And he said to me, my wife, and, and I think it's real important, by the way, if you get a sponsor, it's, it's always nice to do a little investigating. Make sure you've got a good l wife that knows how to bake well. And Francis does. She does a wonderful job. But she would always usually have cookies or something baked, and then she was gone. And I could tell, I don't know what, I, he's never told me, I don't know what happened, but I'm sure that he kind of said, look, I'm working with a newcomer now, and i got to get into the steps, and she's understanding the Al-Anon program, and she's saying, I'll just make sure I'm gone, and you can just go ahead and spend that time. Well, I thought that this was a great time for me now to go and unload all of my problems, because I really had a lot of stuff going on in my life. And what we really honestly did in a very short thing was we went through this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And he took me through some key points in that book, and he said one of the things that he showed me in there was that what our recovery rate is. It's in the foreword of the first edition. And he said the recovery rate today is the same as the recovery rate was when that book was written. And I said, gosh, I heard in treatment, you know, we get these numbers, you know, 1 in 37 and 1 in 400 or 1 in 10 or 1 in 400 or whatever it is. And he said, wait, wait, wait a minute. No, no. We have our own Alcoholics Anonymous survey and statistics, and they work real well, and they haven't changed. And if you look in the third edition, if you look in the forward to the first edition, it'll tell you that 50% who came into Alcoholics Anonymous got sober at once and stayed sober. 25% came back in after some relapses and stayed sober. And the remaining 25%, if they continued on Alcoholics Anonymous, their life got, got better. Now, when I just said that, I almost did that uh, verbatim, almost quoted it out of the book, except I left two words out. The two most important key words in that survey I left out. And, the survey, and what the survey says, those who came in and really tried. So, put the responsibility on the sponsee put the responsibility on the newcomer. But the sponsor has some responsibility. You know, we hear sometimes, like, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Well, you can't make him thirsty. You can feed him enough salt, he's going to get thirsty. And as sponsors, at least, and, and by the way, I sponsor the same way I've been sponsored. I'm not, you know, and you can hear when you talk to somebody, and sometimes I'll tell you Tom said, and the reality is Tom didn't say. Tom might have said something, but that's what I heard. Okay, because that happens all the time in my life. Tom will say something, but that's not what I hear. I hear something else. But what I heard him say is, if you don't try, you have a chance of relapse. And you also have a chance for death. 
The other thing he told me to do is he said, you can find out how effective your sponsorship is if you'll go to a meeting and after you get home from that meeting, write down all the names of the people that were there that you can remember. Put the date on it and go to your calendar and pin it on the back of the calendar six months later. Go back to that same meeting. See what people are there and see how many of the original lists are still there. The ones that have effective sponsorship will probably still be there. What it tells you is that ineffective sponsorship is knocking out lots and lots of people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe that today. Tom took me through the steps. He took them very seriously. He took me through what I call AA etiquette. Tom helped me. Now, I'm going to say he said, and he probably didn't say this, but this is what I heard Tom say. If you go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and tell everybody what your problems are, the reaction and the response is this. Ninety percent of the people don't care. The other ten percent are real bad they got are real glad you got those problems. And what you've just done is you've just now created enough fodder for somebody else not to get well. Because they're going to be gossiping about you. Because they're going to say, Ah, oh, did you hear about Gary? Gosh, the government's got a federal warrant out for his arrest. Because he hasn't paid his taxes. And he's going through a divorce. And the state came in and took everything he's got. And he's trying to stay sober. Oh, that poor guy. Now, that's what was going on in my life when I got sober. And he wouldn't let me talk about it. And I said, well, wait a minute. I go to meetings and they say, the chairman says, well, anybody got anything you want to talk about? We can talk about anything you want to that's affecting your sobriety. He said, your federal warrant isn't affecting your sobriety. He said, it may be affecting your serenity, but it has nothing to do with your sobriety. And when you figure out how to handle that problem, you go back to Alcoholics Anonymous and say, I went through a federal warrant and stayed sober, and I got it taken care of, and here's how I did it. He said, all you talk about when you go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings is you talk about how you stayed sober that day. So some of the folks that went to early meetings with me would have heard me say, my name is Gary, I'm an alcoholic, I'm grateful to be sober today. This morning I got up and read my meditation. And I passed. Now, inside, my guts were tearing apart. Because if it was 2 o'clock, if it was at noon on Thursdays, that meant that at 2 o'clock I had to go down in front of the federal officer and talk to him about my IRS problems. But yet all I could share in AA means how I stayed sober. Now, when I got through with those IRS problems and I took care of that, see, God answers prayer. I firmly believe that. He answered that prayer for me. I, he'd been answering it all along. I just knew it wasn't listening. And when I finally listened, God answered that prayer so clearly and succinctly I can still hear it today. He said, get up in the morning, go to work. Don't spend more money than you make. Go down and see those people and don't give them any of your money. If, if, you owe, if, if there's people who want your money, don't pay them. Don't pay them. Don't give them your money. Just give them theirs. And when I went down and gave the IRS their money, they didn't ask me for any more of mine. And, you know, suppliers and bill collectors and all, when I went down and took care of those responsibilities, they never, you know, it's amazing, they never called me back up and said, we want your money. All they ever wanted was theirs. 
But see, I didn't have that attitude and thought. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to come to AA and tell you how, oh, man, I'm having a tough time. Man, i got to come up with $93,000 by next Thursday or I'm going to federal penitentiary. That's what I wanted to say, but I couldn't say it. Because you see, in AA, when I first came here, I thought they were spies. I thought some of you went around and kind of reported back to the sponsor what was going on. And that's total commitment. That's what Tom talked about in terms of total commitment. He said, when you want to talk about your IRS problems, you come here and talk about it. When you want to talk about your divorce problems that you're going through, you come here and talk about it. And that's what sponsors for. He said, why go out and give more fodder to, so folks can talk about you and not talk about recovery? Because that's what they're going to do. He said, your problems are serious enough. The other thing he told me was it could be worse. He could have them and not me. Uh, <clears throat> but he said, you're going to give them enough fodder. They're going to be talking about your problems. And while they're gossiping about your problems, they're not going to be handling their own situations and getting into recovery, and you're going to cheat them out of recovery. My sponsor taught me a great deal about not cheating other people out of their recovery. And we, he said, yes, I know you do not have the power to get somebody else sober, but you should... I, sober and you do not have the power to get somebody else drunk, but you certainly have a tremendous amount of power in terms of the influence in their life as to whether they get sober or whether they get drunk. And if you treat them unkindly and you feed them other than good, solid information, they may take that information, they'll take that misinformation and they'll take it and use it. You know, one of the things we say in AA, and boy, if you're doing this to your groups, please stop it. I hear it all over. Take what you want and leave the rest. If, if that's what's going on at your group, for heaven's sakes, do a group inventory. Because if you're putting anything out that had not to be taken and used, then stop putting it out. Instead, try this one on. Take it all. Use today what you can. Put the rest of it in your back pocket because someday your life is going to depend on it and you're going to need it. And I hear it sometimes at Alcoholics Anonymous, oh, well, these are all suggested. Oh, well, don't worry about it. We wear this as a loose garment. I don't know about you. I take my disease extremely serious. We're dying from it like AIDS and cancer every day, and it's not something to be laughed about. I take it very serious. If I'm working with somebody in, in a sponsorship role, I am not there to see who can hit the longest golf ball, who can catch the most fish, and who can have the best time. I'm working with somebody that is serious because I think they're if they're as serious about if their disease is as serious as mine, that's serious stuff. I've seen people die. Good friend of mine, been to the Natchez Hoopla Roundup with me one weekend. Kevin and I talked about him this morning, and I said, I wonder if he's alive because after four and a half years, he went back out. And, you know, and he's disappeared. And, and good gravy. I mean, I'm, you know, I think about that guy every day. And I wonder, is there anything ever that I ever said to him? Is there anything that I could have said to him to make him a little more thirsty? Now, there's two things you got to do to get into recovery. And it talks about that. I talked about it on page 30 of the big book. But there's two things you got to do to get into recovery. And it doesn't make any difference which one you do first. But you got to do them both. And one of them is quit drinking, and the other is quit lying. My quit drinking date is October 6th of 1986. My quit lying date, I'm not just real sure when it is, but it was sometime, sometime since then. 
But some people can stay sober for a long period of time, and I know a fellow that at four and a half years just couldn't, the, the lie finally just got him and he couldn't stand it anymore. And it was either blow my brains out or go back to, to drinking and using it, and he did. And I wondered to myself when we went through the steps, you know, what more could have I done? Did I give him all the good, solid information? Did I say to him, this is the stuff that's really important. Here's the recovery program. And I have to take my own inventory and say, oh, dude, were we, were we driving down the road someplace and we're talking about, you know, some girl relationships and some of this and some of that and other stuff? Are we talking about fishing or golfing or whatever? And we weren't talking about when I should have been giving out some good recovery information? And I don't think so. You know, I did the, obviously the best I could, but I'm very much aware of that today. And so today I try to hand out some pretty good information. I want to give you good information. Tom said to me, don't wait till you feel better. Don't wait till the cobwebs get out of your head. I'm giving you misinformation that I hear in AA sometimes. Don't wait till you get a little bit of sobriety before you get in the steps. Because if you do, you will die before the cobwebs get out, before you feel better. You will, that's, people, that's the people that are dying in Alcoholics Anonymous. What happens is that we sometimes, and I've heard it said, oh, well, don't worry about, you know, the book is meant to be suggestive only. You know, we hear all that. You know, for some reason, we skip right over page 85. If you read 85, it says, here are some directions. In the very front of the book, it says, clear-cut directions. There are 57 musts in that book. There's 217 places in that book that says that if you don't do certain things, other results, what the results will be, and they're all promises, and some of them aren't very positive. One of them says, it will kill you. And we need to be aware of that. And I think I had to have a sponsor point all that stuff out to me. And then to learn the history of how that book was written and why you hear all this suggestive stuff until you get to about page 70 in there somewhere. And then all of a sudden you won't see that in there anymore. It's because then we stopped the editing. And we stopped micromanaging the, the uh, writing of the big book. And then it was written by somebody that, you know, Bill, Bill was extremely strong in feeling about his uh, recovery. Bill worked very hard and strong with Ebby Thatcher and was never his sponsor. Ebby was Bill's sponsor. Ebby Thatcher, you know, he died in 1966 and he had uh, two and a half years of sobriety. But his sponsor is still living today. His sponsor is in Texas. His name is Thursday. And some of us, I know Hugh knows him, and I know some of the rest of us know him. We've had the pleasure and opportunity to meet him. And you see, what we do sometimes in Alcoholics Anonymous, I think it's real important in terms of sponsorship. If you're not helping somebody, don't fire them as a sponsee, but get them and help them to go find somebody else that can help them. Sometimes out of frustration, I've, I mean, I've been there. I, I, how am I, in fact, it's some years back, five years ago or so, I sent my sponsor a real nice note and a sympathy card for putting up with me. And it was heartfelt. Well, I can tell you when it was. It was in 1993. And I can tell you why. He was, uh, he was getting ready to have some, some heart surgery. And I was real afraid that he might die. 
And I sent him a little letter and put, give him a card in there for putting up with me. Because what I did, if you go to my Tom's house, he's got a bar there in the kitchen, a second stool, it's mine. And that's where I learned things like if you want to, if you're in bad space, Tom said, get up and get out of that stool and get moved to the next one. You'll be in a different space. And there were times in early sobriety where I'd be standing someplace and I'd just sidestep and nobody knew what I was doing. But what I was doing was remember what Tom said. I was getting some other space. It's there that I learned, and today, it, and I, I don't know a lot of you know about this, but I have more money than I need. Now, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I was broke. In fact, I had interviewed and was going to go into to Ecuador and take a job because I was going to skip the country because I owed so much money. I said I couldn't get out of it, and today, I, you know, I'm, I'm blessed. I've got more money than I need to carry it around my truck. I got it out of my truck now. I carry it with me. I give it away. If anybody needs it, you can have it. I'll never use it. I'll never spend it because, again, it's through the instructions of a sponsor. And so I carry money in every one of my vehicles. I always make sure I have in a vehicle that I'm in. I carry money in there that I'll never use, never want. If anybody needs it, you can have it. And the deal is that one day I was over to his house once. You've got to practice, 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 practice. And the way it happened in my life is Tom told me to go to an AA meeting and listen to somebody, and when they were having a tough time, to go home and take a piece of paper and fold it and lean it up against the clock or the lamp or whatever, right next to my bed and write that guy's name on there or that person's name on there. He said, then the first thing in the morning when you wake up, you look at your clock, turn the light on or whatever, you'll see that person's name. And he said, if you'll keep practicing doing that, someday you'll be able to get out of bed thinking about somebody else. I can tell you that today I no longer have to put a list of people by the side of my bed to think about somebody else before I ever get up. And it's been a long time. I can't remember when I got out of bed and was thinking about me. And I want to tell you, that's a tremendous reward. Wow. I mean, I used to balance checkbooks, and I used to get married and divorced and die and go to funerals and have kids and everything else and, and make lots of money, and I hadn't even gotten out of bed yet. And now I can get up, and I'm thinking about somebody else. Because, but I have to practice it. I have to do it over and over. I, this is not, for me, it's not a program of, oh, well, that's a good thought. I think I'll get into that one and I'll do that the rest of my life. If you try not to think about something, my experience is, you're going to think about it more than you ever thought about it before in your life. So you really have to practice not thinking about it. You know, in the big book, it talks about psychic change. And, and that's on Roman numeral 27. And then on page 27, there's a solution. It talks about ideas and concepts and emotions. Once part, the guiding forces of our lives are totally changed. And a whole new set takes over. And then in, in the fifth chapter, it talks about if you don't get rid of all of your old ideas, the results are nil. And then it talks about it again on, on page 99. And it talks about it again on page 143. So what, I, what I'm saying is that it just goes on and on and on through the book. And tells us that we've got to change our attitude. We've got... It's, it's an attitude change. It's a whole mindset change. How do I go about doing that? Well, again, tip from my sponsor. One of these days, I want to come up with something original. But tip from my sponsor was, take a crayon in your... I was, at the time, living alone. And, and he said, take a crayon, and in your mirror in the bathroom, write, Gary, you're wrong. And he said, the reason is that every morning when you get up, the very first thing, he said, I don't even know you, and I know what you do, you go to the bathroom. Because everybody does. They're going to go into the bathroom. They may turn the coffee pot on, but they're going to go to the bathroom. And he said, when you put the light on to go to the bathroom, you'll be reminded that you're trying to change your thoughts, because it says, Gary, you're wrong. Whatever you're thinking, you need to, you need to change it. 
And I had a crayon marked on the top of my mirror for a long time. It said, Gary, you're wrong. Now, it's not there anymore. But you know, when I walk in my bathroom every morning, I think about that sign that was there. I'm reminded that if you, you know, if you're already starting your little plans for the day and you're back into the I, I, me, me's, that, you know, you got to start thinking about somebody else. Another thing is sponsor. I think a sponsor early on, you've got to help that individual in early recovery. The fellows that I sponsor, one of the things that I, I think I tell them and insist is, you've got to do a daily meditation every day. The guys that I sponsor, I can assure you, they have been told the way that I can make sure, I can guarantee you that you will never miss a daily meditation. You will never forget to do your med- daily meditation. I can, I can give you the secret to that. If that's a secret, and you've had a problem with what, oh, I forgot to do my meditation, I'll give you the answer to how you, the solution, that you will never, ever again forget your daily meditation. You take your meditation books and put them on the floor in front of the commode. You, you may not do them, you may not do your meditation, but you'll never forget it. Because if they're there, you'll see them, because you're going to go there first thing in the morning. My daily meditation books, even today, in fact, right now, over at the motel, my daily meditation books are on the water closet of the commode. They've graduated from the floor up on the water closet. And it's, we're creatures of habit. You do the same thing over and over and over again, and you're going to continue doing it. And so I've got mine all geared up. In fact, now I get, I'll complain if you swap sides of the, of the water closet on the commode. Because I know, you know, I know just how to reach back and get them. I know how to do that deal. It's just an automatic reflex. I can do it. You put them on the other side, you're going to mess me up. You know, that kind of thing. But see, that's a good habit to get into. And I have not done my daily, in fact, today's meditation, the 24-hour book, was absolutely awesome. And I have not forgotten to do my meditation since that, since he told me that. Early on in recovery, he said, I know that you might be interested in reading the big book, and I can tell you that it's not exceptionally interesting reading, but it is recommended that you read it. But he said, until you get into studying it, just go ahead and read it. But it is a textbook, so that means you're going to study it. But he said, if you want to read it, I'll give you the secret to reading the big book and making sure you read it every year. Read two pages every day, and you read to the bottom paragraph on the right-hand side every day. So the next morning when you get up, or whenever you read your big book, get your big book out, go to the bottom paragraph on the right-hand page, read it all around to the bottom paragraph on the right-hand page. And within a year, you will read the entire big book. Now, there's only about three days out of the year that you're going to get screwed up doing that because it doesn't quite work out just real well, and you just have to you have to improvise and figure those what you're going to do that day. But the majority of the time, it's going to work out. You see, it's those little hints that Tom taught me. He taught me how to live. He taught me how to how to go about changing my life. And I think sometimes in AA we say, "Well, just don't drink and go to meetings." Just don't drink go to meetings. I hear that, you know, and I've even heard, you know, just, you know, if your butt falls off, just pick it up and don't drink and go to meetings. Well, if you study, now, I didn't mention it, my home group is the Beach Group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we meet every Monday night at the Presbyterian Church in Gulfport. It's a closed book study meeting. Now, why do I go to a closed book study meeting? I thought I heard my sponsor say I needed to go to a book study meeting. 
I don't know that he's ever actually said that, but I can tell you that my sponsor's home group is a book study meeting, and it's not mine. It's not the same one. His home group's not the same as my home group. Tom has always gone to a lot of book study meetings, and he said it's because it's a textbook, and we always need to make sure, I always want to make sure I get all that's in there and get, get all the information that's in there, because it's a deadly disease I got. If I had cancer and they told me if I studied this book, I could eliminate my cancer, you think I wouldn't study that thing to figure out exactly what I have to do? He said, I'd read it all. And he said, you got alcoholism, it's a fatal disease, you're going to die from it, but the solution's here. It's the only one that's worked in the last 7,000 years. And they've traced alcoholism, as I understand, now they've traced it back 7,000 years. So if it's been here that long, and this is the only thing that so far has shown that rate of recovery, he said, I want to get it all. So my home group's the book study me. And I think think that if, if... if I just don't drink and go to meetings, chances are, I call some meetings. Well, the other thing Tom told me, let me tell you this. He told me there's two W's in AA, and they're both important. And you need them both, and they're both good for recovery. There are winners, and there are whiners. And, the, and they're both teachers. The winners will teach us what to do. We observe the winners, we stick with the winners, and we find out what to do. The whiners are also important, because they teach us what not to do. And he said, one of the things you need to do is, you go, you listen to somebody that's whining, he said, perk up and listen, because whatever it is they don't want to do, you volunteer to do it. Jump at the opportunity. That's probably a really great recovery opportunity for you, and you'll miss it and you'll pass it up. So he said, listen to the whiners. But he said, remember that if you think, and I I found this out through the book study, if you think that just not drinking is going to meetings is going to get it, read very carefully on page 24 and 25 of the big book, and it'll tell you right in there that just not drinking is going to meetings and you'll die. I call it credit card sobriety. We all get them in the mail these days, these little applications for credit cards. You get one, and fine. You fill it out, they send you the credit card. You can go to the store and you can buy goods and you don't have to pay for it. Isn't that wonderful? And you can get to use the goods. Kind of like AA. You can go to AA. Don't have to do nothing. Don't have to pay for it. It's free. And you got your sobriety. Isn't it wonderful? Thirty days later, they send a bill. You don't have to pay it. Throw it away. They don't come take the credit card away from you. You can still use it. Unless you overmaxed it out. But you can still use it, and you still get to keep the goods. Now, at some point in time, when you take that credit card and hand it to that clerk, she's going to slide it through that thing, come back and say, I'm sorry, this credit card's not any good. But she doesn't say, he or she clerk doesn't say, and bring back all the goods you bought on this credit card or take them back where you bought them. No, you still get to keep the goods, still get to use them. Some point in time, and we don't know when, somebody's going to come along and say, they're going to send us letters and all that kind of thing. And eventually somebody's going to come along and say, hey, we're going to court. Not only do you owe for the goods, but now you owe interest and penalty and some other things and we're going to come and do. And there's just some kind of consequences that are pretty great. Same thing happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. You can just not drink and go to meetings and you can, yeah, you can stay sober. But if you're not starting to give back what you got at some point in time, 
the piper is going to come to get paid. And the consequences in Alcoholics Anonymous, it appears at least, tend to be fairly substantial. Now, most of us, our credit cards run out. Most new mem- newcomers, in AA, or most people that come into Alcoholics Anonymous, their credit cards run out within the first year. Some within 30 days, some within 60 days, and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, there are some people in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I know some. I used to go to a Wednesday meeting, Wednesday night meeting. That particularly was always careful to sit close to this guy because I admired him. And Marvin's credit card ran out after 28 years of sobriety. And today, Marvin's a wet brain in the, in the VA hospital and will be there and confined there for the rest of his life. His credit card ran out. I don't want anybody that I'm working with credit card to run out. So how do you pay in the credit card of Alcoholics Anonymous? We have a circle and triangle. One of the things that we do not look at in our customary function of Alcoholics Anonymous is service. We get people all the time, and I've heard it, gosh knows I've heard it, Oh, no, I ain't going to go do that. Uh-uh. That's a bunch of politics. I ain't, well, I ain't going to my home group meeting. That's a bunch of politics. No, I ain't going to district. Now, that's for those guys that want to get involved in that stuff. No, I ain't going to area assembly. I ain't involved in that because that's, that's for somebody else. Hear it all the time. Hear it all the time. And I understand. I think we ought to try to make it more attractive to draw people in. But I'm here to tell you that if we're not giving it away, we're, we're very dangerous to be on credit card sobriety. Now, there's a lot of different ways. I'm not saying you've got to go to group meetings and district meetings and an area assembly. There's a certain function of people that like to do that. And all the people that I sponsor, you don't see them all going to area assembly and district meetings and so on. But I'm going to tell you this. If I'm going to sponsor you, you are going to be in service. You are going to take a meeting into a treatment center. You are going to take a meeting into a correctional institution. You are going to take a meeting into a VA or an old people's home. You are going to be involved in some kind of service which is going to take away from your time. Because I would... Now, I say that. (laughs) Well, yeah, you're going to do it. Because I just make life so miserable for you that you'll either do it or go find another sponsor. Because I will not participate in allowing you and letting you die. The recovery program tells me over and over again that the only way, and we have sayings about the only way to keep it is to give it away. We say that we've got to go out and we've got to help and work with others. And I'm here to tell you that at least my experience, my sponsor told me after I was sober probably about six months or so, he said setting up chairs and making coffee and dumping ashtrays is no longer service work. That's responsibility that you owe to your group. That's just being that's just being responsible. Now you gotta get into service. Having your name down on the hotline for them to give you a call is not service work. It's going out and searching for those calls and starting to do everything you can to help those people out. That's when it becomes service. Putting your name down on a driver's list, putting your name down on a hotline list just means, oh well, if you have anything else to do, call me. But I'm sure not going to take up my time to try and call you. I'm of the opinion that for me, what I get, I get out, I get out what I put in. 
And what I try and tend to do is I, I want to put in a lot because I want a lot back out. My life today is absolutely fantastic and there isn't anything special going on. Fifteen years ago today, I was at the point of suicide. October the 5th of 1986, I took a 12-gauge shotgun, put a deer slug in it, and went out in the woods and stuck it in my mouth and practiced committing suicide. And here I am today. Tell me how that happened. If it hadn't been for sponsorship. Now, sponsees got some responsibility. If you're a sponsee, you got some responsibility. I look at one. <laughs> if you want to be sober, if you want recovery in your life to change, your responsibility is to become willing. With no willingness, if you're dragging your feet, if as a sponsee, when my sponsor suggests something to me, even today, and, and I today, still today, I go to my sponsor. In fact, I, my sponsor right now is helping me to deal with a problem that I'm not going to tell you about because it's none of your business. Now, if I get it all worked out, I'll be happy to come back and tell you what it was, and I'll be happy to come back and tell you how we worked it out. He has told me two months ago, when we first started working on it, he said, this might be one of God's greatest gifts in your life. Now, I thought he had just gone off the wagon. But that the sponsee now has to become willing, and I have become very willing. And some of the things that I've had to do, I have not particularly wanted to do and did not particularly want to even think about. I, I really appreciate the Alateen this morning. <laughs> she brought me back to thinking about some willingness when she talked about making amends. You know, there are some times that there's some things in my life that I have to do that I don't want to do. And Tom will say to me, well, my experience has been, or I think that maybe this might work for you, or you'll say, you know, God's given you some great opportunity here. And, and when I hear him say that, I, I hear him say, well, now I go get prepared. And now I start working at trying to get prepared. So a sponsee has got the responsibilities of going and being prepared. Sponsors aren't responsible for taking, picking you up and taking you to meetings, unless you're out of a driver's license, if you don't have a driver's license. If he doesn't have a driver's license, that's still not your sponsor's responsibility. They may choose to accept that responsibility. It's your responsibility to pick up a telephone and call and try to arrange rides. Now, if you haven't paid your phone with the telephone company and you haven't got a telephone, it's your responsibility to get out and walk out of your house and go somewhere and continue to walk until you find one. This is not something of, oh, let me come take care of you. The same thing is as a sponsee, it is your responsibility to start to learn something about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It does not just drop out of the sky and we all of a sudden get struck sober. My sponsor taught me, one of the things, and I think sponsors ought to do this, uh, it was done with me and I try to do it with the guys that I sponsor, my sponsor led me into the traditions. And one of the biggest things that we have that I see in AA that we don't do is we don't sponsor in the traditions. And then what we'll do, even as groups and individuals, we will adjust the traditions to fit our own personal agenda. We say, yeah, I know I shouldn't ought to, shouldn't have to ought to do this, but I think I will anyway because. 
and we will justify our own behavior. We do it as groups, and we do it as individuals. If we would apply the, the traditions to our lives on an individual basis, our life will get a lot better. Now, I'm not here to tell you how great my wife is, but I'm going to tell you how great my wife is. My wife is absolutely fantastic. I love my wife from the bottom of my heart. She's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Now, it's a fairy tale story. The way I met her was because she was at a service meeting asking for a service manual, and I happened to have one, and I gave it to her. We went to lunch, and and and, and uh, ten months later we got married. I'm so grateful for that. Now, what is the rewards of all that? Is I got a ready-made family because now I got two daughters, and they're not stepdaughters, thank you. Nobody stepped on anybody. They're my daughters. And I, now, as their father and as my wife's husband, I need today to act like it. That's my responsibility. I'm not very proud of it, and I don't share. I'm not going to share it in depth unless it's something that you need to know in depth. But I have been an Alcoholics Anonymous and not acted the way in which it was pleasing and rightful for me to act. Today, I'm married, I have two children, and I want to act like it. Today, I am 14 years, 11 months sober, I act like it. I'll never forget my sponsor coming to me one time and saying, how long have you been sober? And I said, I don't know, six months or whatever, and he said, oh. I just wondered how somebody that's six months sober acts. And I said, well, what do you mean? Oh, he said, I know now they act just like you. Oh. He taught me the inventory question. <clears throat> what would AA be like if everybody 20 years ago in Alcoholics Anonymous acted then exactly like you acted today? Some days, in my behavior, AA would have been kind of on some thin ice. And some days it'd be in pretty good shape. But I always say, you know, he's, he's taught me, through the traditions, he's taught me about the hour of that first tradition. How important that hour is and how it expands. Today, my hour has gotten much larger than it used to be. My hour, when it says our common welfare, it used to be, when I first was in, well, first it was just me. And then it wasn't long, it was just the, the folks that I was in treatment with, and then pretty soon it just became my home group, and then it was kind of like South Mississippi, and how do I care what happens in Natchez or somewhere else? And today it's over, overwhelming, it's all over the world. And why? One of the things that taught me that is I talked about Mike. You remember the bird colonel? He and I were very, very close. We went a lot of places together, did some workshops together. Mike was the CPC chairperson for the state of Mississippi, Area 37, at the area level, and served as our CPC chairperson. <laughs> and Mike did, made a lot of meetings in a lot of different places. And now, all of a sudden, he got notification he's being transferred to Washington. You think all of a sudden I didn't get concerned about how AA was in Washington? Because Mike had tried to get sober numerous times and hadn't been successful. And now, all of a sudden, he got sober in an AA community on the coast. And, of course, I'm selfish and self-centered. I think it's the best one in the area. And so I'm one of those that was around here saying, oh, man, they'll never do AA up there like they do here. And, man, you know, Mike's had so much trouble. Oh, man, if he goes up there and gets in that hustle-bustle, boy, if he gets drunk and knowing his... I mean, he used to fly a, one of those hogs, whatever they are, A-10, drunk. <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know, I just I can just see him up there I, if he got drunk. And, and I was real worried. 
I got real concerned about Alcoholics Anonymous in in, uh, in Washington. I'm here to tell you that Mike's a great contributor to Alcoholics Anonymous in Washington. When he got there, the very first week he went there, he went down to the central office to find out where a service meeting was. That's the first thing he did when he went there. He said, I know you got AA meetings. Where's the service meeting? And they said, oh, there's one, I don't know, like a day or two later down. He said, well, where is that? And he got the address and he went there. And he volunteered and the following Sunday he took a meeting into the, to the jail in the city. He's been doing it ever since. He's organized a roundup up there. He's always active. And here he is. You know, I would probably say, well, you know, in fact, the last time he came down to go, he, he called me one day. That's about a year or so ago. He called me. He said, you know, I haven't been to a meeting with my sponsor in a long time. He said, I just have a yearning to go to a meeting with you. And, I, and he said, I'm in Utah. And he said, I'm going to fly down to New Orleans. I'm going to rent a car. I'm going to come on over. I want to go to the noon meeting. He said, can we go to the noon meeting tomorrow at 24th at, in, in Gulfport? And I said, I'll be there. And I met him. I didn't, you know, I was kind of proud because here's this guy in full uniform, you know, comes in here and I'm sitting next to him and there's some folks in the service that had been service and they recognized the bars and the strikes. But the love I have for that guy and the love that he has for Alcoholics Anonymous, he'd come here today if it meant helping you get sober. That's how he is. I emailed him yesterday, and I said, Mike, I know you got some real tough decisions to make, and I know your life is pretty tough right now. And I said, I just, because, see, I believe in win-win, and Mike believes in win-win, because I taught that to him, and, and or we've shared that together. And so when I said to him something about, well, how you doing, he, and he wrote back, and big letters came across my screen, and he had them in color, and said, awesome. Well, and I know that part of that's because he's putting up with, I know he's putting up with a lot of anguish, and I said to him, I said, Mike, if you have some tough decisions to make, and you're real disturbed and distraught, I said, I'll get in my car, my truck, and I'll drive up to Washington, and I'll spend three, four hours with you, and I'll turn around and come back. That's how much I love AA. My sponsor did that for me when my father died. My father died in sobriety, and I was in Ohio. My sponsor was in Pennsylvania. Before he went, he looked on the map, and he said, if you get real distraught, and you need me to, we picked a halfway point, and he said, you call me. In a half hour, I'll be in my vehicle headed towards you, and you be in your vehicle headed towards me, and I'll meet you. That's commitment. In 1993, my sponsor was having some difficulty, and they took him to the uh, Keesler's. And that Saturday afternoon, the doctor came in, and they'd done all the tests and so on. And they said, well, Tom, your arteries are clogged, and we're real concerned that you're going to die. And eight years prior to that, or 12 years prior to that, he had had the same surgery. And so this meant the second time his arteries around his heart were clogged. And they said, it's really dangerous, and we're really concerned about it. And they said, we'd like to have a team of doctors... We need to, you need to have this, this bypass surgery. They said, unfortunately, our team of doctors that does it here aren't here and won't be here for two weeks. Now, we got two choices. You can stay here, and we'll monitor you and keep you very close, and if you get into some difficulty, we might be able to balloon you and do whatever, whatever, and keep you going, and we'll keep you on the blood thinning medication and so on and so forth. Or they said there's a team of doctors in San Antonio, Texas. 
and they're prepared and they'll operate Monday or Tuesday and they'll do this bypass surgery. During the course of that conversation on Saturday morning, it was on a Saturday morning, and during the course of that conversation, that doctor m mentioned the word death or die twice. And I heard him loud and clear. And, and Tom, when he talks to me a lot of times, when we get serious about stuff, he calls me partner. And so he looked at me and he said, well, partner, what do you think we ought to do? And I said, I think we ought to go to San Antonio. So I looked at the doctor and said, I'll go to, we'll go to San Antonio. And they said, all right, we'll make arrangements. We'll fly you out tonight. Remember I talked about miracles in Alcoholics Anonymous? I left that hospital, Keesler Air Force Base. I left there, and then when I looked at my clock when I was leaving, it was 12 o'clock, and I thought, oh, shoot. It's noon on Saturday. There's no way I can get an airline ticket. Because I told Tom I said, when I left, I said, Tom, I'll be back in about two hours. And I thought, oh, man, there ain't no way I'm going to get an airline ticket from a from a travel bureau and I don't do that well with just going and buying a ticket and I didn't know how to go do it and I went by that, the mall and at the mall there's a little travel agency there and I just thought well I'll pull in and look and I pulled in and there was a lady in there the door was locked and, and it was closed but there was a lady in there setting up some bookings and some tickets and I knocked on the door and she came and answered the door and I said I need to get a ticket and I need to fly to San Antonio Texas she said well when do you want to return I said I don't know but I said I just need to get there as quick as I can when I walked back in that hospital that afternoon, I told Tom, I said, I've got to go home and pack. I'm going to San Antonio. I'll be there. And he said, well, where are you going to stay? And his wife was there, and she said, well, she, they have all kinds of officers do different things. And they said, well, you know, can he stay on base with us? And, and uh, they said, no, you've got to be immediate family. And, he's not, and, and Tom said, that's my son. And, and the, the guy said, no, I can't do that. And, I said, Tom, don't worry about it. I'll figure it out. And he said, well, gosh, you know, you can't go over there and you have to rent a car and motel. And he said, that's going to be tough. And I said, Tom, I'll figure it out. Some of you may remember that in 1993, I was asked to serve this area as the alternate delegate. And as alternate delegate, one of the things you get is you get a sheet of paper that tells you all the delegates and all the alternate delegates throughout all the United States. There's 93 of them now. Would you care to guess? Anybody want to guess where the alternate delegate from West Texas lived? San Antonio, Texas. So I didn't know. I never met the man. But I called Tom up. His name is Tom. I called Tom and told him about Tom. He said, oh, man, that's great. He said, I live about a mile and a half from the base. And he said, Shire, who was his wife, is leaving, left this morning, and is going to be gone for a week. She went with some women, and they were doing some kind of a retreat up in New Mexico or someplace, and he said, I was going to be home alone for a week. He said, come spend the week with me. I've got a car, it's her car, and it's already got a pass for the base, so you won't even have to go through security to get on base. And you can just come stay here. I'll give you the key to the house and the key to the car and just come whenever you want and go whenever you want. And that's exactly what happened. See, I went there. I got prepared. God provided the opportunity. The miracle happened and I was there when Tom had his surgery. That's what I... See, Tom had taught me and sponsors, I think, are responsible to teach sponsees that if we will take advantage of opportunities... <laughs> If we maintain the preparedness, we will be okay. 
what we do so often is we do the foxhole prayer when we're still in Alcoholics Anonymous. We're around praying for money. We're around praying for food. We're around praying for relationships. But we ain't listening. I believe that God, the God that I understand today in my life, is powerful enough that I could be a doctor tomorrow morning. I could pray, God, make me a surgeon tomorrow morning, and I, I think he's powerful enough to make me a surgeon. But I believe the answer to that prayer is, get up in the morning, go to medical school. But see, the answer that I hear is, oh, if I have enough faith, I'll be a doctor. And I think that as sponsors, that's what we need to teach sponsees, because that's what we've been looking for. Sponsees, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I was looking for a slap-ass miracle. I wanted, because I needed one in my life. It just didn't happen like I thought. I mean, the miracle happened, but it didn't happen like I thought it would. And I think that's what part of it part of our responsibility. I also think that sponsors sometimes, we can get into trying to be other things that we are not. If we've got somebody that's got some sincere physical or mental or health problems, we ought to help to direct them to get to the proper people and go with them, if necessary, to get the kind of help they need and not shame them. I'll do it with people I sign. In fact, just last week, the guy I sponsored, I, I suggested to him and gave him the guy's card to go see a mental health specialist and said, I really recommend you give this guy a call. Now, my ego said, oh, I can solve that problem. You know, I can work with you and I can solve that problem. And I might have killed him. And I don't need to be killing him. I need to let him go do what he needs to do. It's really... Uh, time to quit. I did bring some questions and answers on sponsorship pamphlets, and I brought those simply because if you want one, feel free to take it. Uh, the uh, I didn't go over those because, number one, if it's already printed in our literature, I don't think we need to talk about it. <laughs> you know, it's there. You know, go read it and take it. Sponsorship, is, to me, one of the things I'll tell you about my sponsor and, and I hope I am that kind of a sponsor, and I hope you are too. Sponsorship is you would never say anything. My sponsor would never say anything to hurt me, to me, that would hurt me spiritually, physically, or emotionally, ever. If you have not got a sponsor who has been willing to take you through the steps, if you've been sober for a long period of time, you have not gone through the program and out of the book, that will not work as a cry for me, I didn't have it done to me. If you want to be responsible and you want to be a sponsor and you want to sponsor in that manner, then take it upon yourself to do it. The instructions are in the book. And if no one, if you can't find them, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I had a guy ask me to sponsor me. He's got more sobriety than I got. And he said, I want some things that you got, and one of the things I want to do is I want to figure out and find out how you take guys through the steps. And we're information seekers, and that's great. Do it. 
it's, I don't think it's any excuse for me to say, oh, well, I didn't do that. Now, if your sponsor is one that says, here, go read the book, and if you have any problems, give me a call, and that's worked for you, and that's working fine, that's fine. That's another way of sponsoring. We don't, I, I don't have the whole answer on sponsorship and how to do it. I just know, and all I can share with you is what's worked for me, what I have done. I'm going to close this one comment. I talked about the third God spot. Before I went to conference in 1996, a guy that I was sponsoring had a difficult time staying sober, and, and he finally had, had gotten sober and stayed sober, and he's got his family back, and he would moved to a piece of property and so on. And when I was gone, we had a commitment. And I think it's neat for sponsors, sponsees to make little commitments. And when I was in New York, we made a commitment that at 5.30 every morning New York time, no, 6.30 New York time, 5.30 this time, we would get on our knees and pray for each other, and he was a riverboat captain. And we just made that connection. So every morning we did that. And he was out on the river, and so I came back on the Mississippi River. And when I came back, uh, I was going down the interstate, and my pager went off. I that time wore a pager, and it was Tom's number. And, of course, I told you about Tom's heart attack and her heart problems. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, something's wrong with Tom. I hurry up and call his house. And he said, where are you? And I said, I'm going back to the office. And he said, I'll be there. I said, are you all right? And he said, yeah. I said, but I'll be there. He came out to tell me that Captain James had died of a heart attack on that riverboat. And so Leah, his wife, called me and asked me if I'd be a pallbearer, and I did. And I was honored to do that. But no one understood why when the funeral procession left the funeral home when we went out to the cemetery, when we pulled into the cemetery, that I broke down in uncontrollable crying and couldn't stop. And if you ever come to Gulfport, Mississippi, I'll be happy to show you Captain James's cemetery plot. I was there last week. It's my third gun spot. And he didn't even know it was there. His family didn't know it was there. We miss these opportunities if we're not prepared. And it's my function as a sponsor to prepare the sponsees for the opportunities for those kind of miracles. Thank God. You think I'd have done that if Tom hadn't suggested it? Absolutely not. Got any questions? Anybody got any comments? I could go on for hours and hours more. I can tell you some more miracles in my life. I tell you, there's some things that happen in my life that give me chill bumps. Think about it. Absolutely give me chill bumps. Thank you so much. You're very attentive for a Saturday afternoon workshop. Thank you.